Hello and glad tidings to all of you out there in Soprano land. We are here with the Sopranos podcast, season one, episode four, Narcissism. You have children. You know what they're like. You know that sometimes it's important to let them have the illusion of control. That quote was spoken by Dr. Jennifer Melfi in Season 1, Episode 4 of The Sopranos, entitled Meadowlands. This episode was written by Jason Cahill and directed by John Patterson, the first of many he will do in this great show. And uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm here with my wonderful hosts. I'm Chris D'Amato, of course, and joining me is... Paul Mancini. And Jordan Hugh. And we're here to discuss this awesome episode. So guys, we're into it. We are past what I would cite to be the preliminaries, and we are getting into the heart of this story. What are what are an episode this is? <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, this, this uh, Meadowlands is really wonderful. Uh, so with that said, what are your gut responses to this? What, was, what did this episode leave you feeling and thinking when it ended? This episode, for me, is another beginning in earnest of some of the madness in this world i want to i know that you mentioned the director of the episode is john patterson it's Mm -hmm. the first uh sopranos episode that he directs it's not the last Uh, we lost him i believe in 2005 Mm -hmm. um but the mark that he left on this show is another debt that the show owes to him um beginning with the dream sequence that starts this episode which is beautifully constructed it contains a shot that I feel fairly confident is a shout out to Psycho when mm. um, when he when the chair turns and it turns out to be Livia. Ugh. This horrible reveal. <laughs> yeah. It feels a lot both visually and in terms of the structure. It looks like the shot in Psycho to me, where the chair turns around and spoiler alert for Psycho it turns out to be Norman Bates's dead mother. Yeah, um, a lot of Freudian stuff going on there too, because he's we really are seeing Melfi uh, through Tony's eyes in kind of a sexual light. The skirt she's wearing, the way she's moving her leg, the way the camera's kind of angled on it. Right. Um, and this is another thing that the, the Sopranos does very well. Um, at the beginning, there's no way of knowing. This is the first dream sequence we've ever seen. And increasingly, the scenarios get stranger and stranger and less and less likely hesh walking by outside Silvio, <laughs> banging, I, I assume, one of the Bada Bing girls in the waiting room. Um... But um, not completely unlikely, because Anthony being in the doorway foreshadows um, the ending. Yep. Uh, this episode, to me, I, I'm going to use three keywords to frame it out, um, and then I think we can dig deeper into narcissism. Um, there's checking in. Mm. Every scene, almost every scene in this episode, has some variation on where were you, where have you been, what's going on, what's up with you. Boundaries. Very important. For guys who apparently don't have to follow the rules, there are rules about fucking everything. You can't say this, you don't talk about that, you don't talk about piss and shit in front of your mother, Hmm. all that stuff. Um, And the third one I'd say is space and pollution. Um, I I didn't know why for the longest time this episode was called Meadowlands, um, except that Chris uses the reference to a scenario where he was mock executed. Um, There's that, and this episode is all about scenarios. It's all about telling a story a certain way. Um, But the other thing about space is that this episode has Tony in particular being crowded in by all these different disparate influences. He's got to maintain his status everywhere, and it's not easy, and a lot of these scenes don't go well. Um, And the main issue with the Meadowlands historically in New Jersey is space and pollution, Mm. and we're going to write to the last sequence which shows a funeral even the funeral can't get away from the trucks on the fucking 
throughway or the highway, if you notice, um, and the Meadowlands um, brings up. Essentially, I think what this episode has to do with is these characters seeking out status, and again, the space is limited, and pollution is going to come up, and you just don't want to be the person getting shit on or pissed on mm. or what have you. Um, as Tony will, Tony starts off the episode haunted by a dreamscape, and by the end, he's polluted a relationship um, between Melfi and one of her possible bows. Um, he's actualized this figure of a haunted man in the guy Randall. Um, so these are the sequent, these are the images that come up um, for me throughout this episode, and it added up to a super compelling, rich. Um, and really funny uh, one hour. So. Wow. Well, it, it's a shame that you can't find Lysol spray anywhere in the store because I got to clean this wall behind me. You just blew my fucking brain out. <laughs> Jordan, initial thoughts on Meadowlands. You know, my initial thought isn't particularly academic. It's that it's actually a very uh, funny episode. Mm. For the very significant, very serious things that happen in episode four, it has a very light touch. And I mean that in a very charming way. Mm. It is imminently watchable, despite the fact that these interactions are occasionally very dark and the events are occasionally very sinister. Um, in terms of this uh, enigmatic title, Meadowlands, uh, I think Paul did such a, a great job with the analysis. Um, I, I did want to also bring up, when I think of the Meadowlands, I almost think back to our earlier discussion of why some have hypothesized that Meadow is named Meadow, which is a name that does not fit in with the world of the Sopranos. <laughs> right. I think Meadowlands also is, is part of that. Meadowlands, for me, just the word all by itself, taken away from maybe the culture of what it has become or what it is, reminds me of the Elysium Fields. Uh, or Elysium mm -hmm. itself, which was like the kind of Greek afterlife set apart from Hades for like the gods and heroes when they were done in this world. And it's like, this is the world of the Sopranos. This is what we exist in. This is their version of the gods and heroes. But they don't go to a kind of heaven. They go to the Meadowlands. And of course, this is the episode in which we lose uh, Jackie April. Mm -hmm. And he is interred. And at his burial, um, yes, there is there, there are many kind things said about the man. We drink a toast to him at the Bada Bing. But his burial doesn't feel heroic, and it's very not about him. Uh, for such a, a looming figure, um, Jackie's significance in the episode is really reduced, and that's not me being critical of the writing. It's me kind of saying, uh, it, it's more looking at what is the end game for these guys. Hmm. You know, even hmm. in death, they're not really remembered in a way that is heroic or worthy. The best they can do is the Meadowlands. Hmm. Uh, could I pick up on that, please? Uh, I think that's such a uh, such a great point. What is the end game? It, it's just the Meadowlands. Um, and interestingly, we know. I think when we discussed the last episode, we discussed this wonderful sequence at the end of episode three where Brendan is killed. Mm. Um, but this is the episode where characters find out that mm. Brendan has died. First with Christopher, um, then he tells everybody. And uh, in that same sequence of um, Jackie is sadly slipping away at the hospital. But I noticed, and I this is the I've watched this episode several times. Absolutely, it was the first time that I took down this note. Whether you are kingpin gangster like Jackie April or kind of half a gangster like Brendan Falone, in this <laughs> world, once the dirt has folded over you, it's kind of done with you. Because again, if we're talking about narcissism here, then this question of status means that once your status is dead, 
you're only affecting other people's status by that property of your being now dead and gone and buried. Once Brendan is dead, Chris is like, Michael Palmisi contracted these fucking Russians and killed my friend. And after that, it's all about Chris and his status. And Tony, mm. mo much more emotional about Jackie's death for sure. And I'll give Tony, not a pass, but a little bit of a side note on this is that Jackie to some degree has already left us and we've already begun the mourning process because in episode three he was slowly slipping away. But again, once he's dead and gone, it's about Junior, it's about Tony, it's about what the future holds. And again, a tribute to Patterson here. This one shot near the end, I think it's like a Citizen Kane kind of shot that cranes up from Jackie's open grave at Tony when the bereaved throw the dirt. I love that shot. It's a great shot. Yeah. And you see Tony cloaked in this black, and you see, I think, the brilliance of how he has used his machinations to get to this point to solidify his power, but also insulate himself from too much attention. And you see that underlined, but you also see, I think, underlined this loneliness and this isolation that um, could bring it back to what Jordan was talking about. Where are these guys, and what is the end game for them? Kind of grim imagery, but again, as Jordan noted in an episode that is so charming and so funny. Yeah. Well said, guys. Well said. I, I concur on all points. There's a lot going on here. Um, what also resonates with me, let's, let's, I'm going to get into a quick plot breakdown because uh, I, I, I am fully with you on everything you said, but I want to touch on the AJ storyline. What we have in this, in this, we have another ABC plot situation here. We have, uh, I think the A plot would have to be, the issue of the succession and and Jackie is dying. Who's taking over? Is it Tony or Junior? The fallout with Chris and Brendan. This is the chaos within the family. Family is all. Um, it, it would be what I would consider plot A. Plot B would be AJ discovering who his dad is, and I, I think plot D is this Tony spying on Doctor Melfi via Vin McKazian, which I want to get into <laughs> shortly. Sure. But uh, I want to talk for a second about the AJ plot um, because, as you've mentioned uh, several times already, this episode had such a light touch, but this is a devastating event for AJ. And it's dealt with in such a unique way because, um, look, let's be frank here. AJ's, AJ's not a bright kid. He's, he's kind of a bit of a dope. Um, and there are so many... Uh, it was not an accident that AJ is a kid who plays Nintendo and he ends up potentially getting into a fist fight with a kid who is a star athlete. You know, Tony's reference to his father in that scene with the action. That's going to get him a scholarship. Sure. And the athlete, the kid who would vary twice the size of AJ, backs down from the fight. And AJ, that, that's kind of the impetus for AJ to go to Meadow and kind of figure out what's going on. And his... He's not prepared to process this. This is all so much for him. This is something that's going to leave an impact on AJ for the rest of his life. And he's not equipped either by age or intellect to understand or deal with this. That shot where he is staring at his picture with him and his father with the big fish. And he's just, he turns the light off and looks at, he's literally looking at his father in a different light. And it's such a that, that I just got a chill when you said that. Actually, oh. I, 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 that's I, that's my favorite sequence in that episode is AJ lying in bed at night, looking at that picture of his father that will never look the same again. Yeah, and that that that's I mean, in an episode that had so many great classic gangster moments, and in an, in an episode that generally had kind of a lighter touch, um, I did not expect it to wallop me in the gut 
as hard as it did when it came around to that. Any thoughts on AJ's journey in this episode? For sure. If I might, uh, if I might uh, just comment on... Um, it's so deliberate that um, the actor cast is, as Jeremy Piacosta is like this towering kid. Yeah. Uh, he could easily win any fight with AJ, and in the couple of scuffles they have, he totally dominates. Mm -hmm. It's very clear to the viewer who the more uh, aggressive, uh, better fighter is. This episode is largely about narcissism in terms of uh, Tony and how he perceives himself and how others perceive him. But now AJ, in realizing some of his father's uh, truths uh, and thus a truth about himself, is starting to kind of figure out his own place in the world and how his father's renown affects him. And, and that's, that is kind of the crux of the A-plot. Um, I guess where I'm at with AJ is I love that he's so deeply uncool. He's wearing a Marilyn Manson t-shirt, you know, standing <laughs> on his bed, confronting his mother. Uh, I love that Carmela is so principled that she's obsessed over a $40 shirt when the Sopranos are putting away thousands of dollars a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's so much good there that really resonated with me is having remembered being, being at, in middle school, having a terrible haircut, wearing a collared shirt that does not fit you. Yeah. You know, all, all of that really resonated so nicely with me. And yeah, it's, it's a devastating realization for AJ when he realizes how rigged the system is in his favor mm. because of who his father is. And now he's starting to see how his father uh, contaminates his life as well. Because let's face it, this is not a happy realization for AJ. No. He doesn't walk away from the fight at the pit saying to himself, yeah, you know, fuck that guy, fuck Jeremy. He knows who my dad is and now I'm a badass. He wanted to fight for that money. He wanted to earn something for himself, and AJ will never be able to. Yep. Wow. Very astute. Paul? Uh, yeah, I mean, these are all great points. I mean, uh, this, this is an interesting storyline because, as you mentioned, Chris, this storyline ends with AJ realizing who his dad is, but it's a B storyline. It's kind of, it's fairly goofy, deliberately so. Oh, yeah. It's very funny. Um, and the A storyline is all about Tony trying to solidify his power and insulate himself from exposure. So, and it works. He mm. fucking kills it in yeah. this episode. He does, he does, he does a beautiful job with it. And yet, almost through the dumbest means possible, AJ has realized the truth. Episode starts with a dream. It ends with AJ awaking mm. to the reality of who his dad is. He's right past the wink. You can't pull the wool over his eyes anymore, even though Tony expertly blinded him when they were playing Mario Kart. Um, <laughs> uh, which is a great, great uh, scene. It's the first check-in scene of many. Um, I also think, yeah, this storyline um, is interesting to me on a lot of levels. Um, it plays, I think we talked maybe about a little bit about Greek influence. It almost seems a little bit like something out of the Odyssey with the Odysseus's sons doing the micro version of their dad's big adventure. This is an idiotic fight that is headed off by somebody saying, I don't want any disturbance. It's exactly what Tony manipulates in the mm. A storyline. Um, let me head off this possible problem. Paul, um, do, you, do you think that Jeremy Piacosta would have had to give back the money if Tony hadn't run into his father at the gardening depot? This is such a good question. I actually Ooh. don't think so. I mean, I do think that it had that influence. Um, and that's a really funny scene. Um, I don't know the actor who plays Jeremy Piacosta's dad. He's the best uh, critic impersonator I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Looks um, just like him. Yeah, very funny. Um, and it's so... It is, wow, Jay it's Sherman. An, <laughs> it's another Sopranos irony, of course, that Tony is innocent of malice. 
in that particular. He's holding the axe, but he doesn't even know the guy's wife's name. He's not threatening him. He barely knows what's happening. Of course, Tony can never be completely innocent. In that same scene, he's asking for... Uh, what is it? The uh, band DDT for his guard. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's actually, you know what? That's actually not the only moment in this episode where um, knowledge and power is reversed in an interesting way. That last scene Tony has with Melfi, where he, for the first time in their relationship, knows something she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And he's the holder of knowledge that she doesn't have. That's uh, just kind of an interesting mo- I think there's a couple of those moments throughout this episode where characters are ex- experiencing different shifts in power. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that one of the things about this show, and this episode might be one of the first great big examples of it. I watched a video um, about the writing of The Sopranos that David Chase essentially hosts. Um, I've watched it in quarantine because what the shit else am I going to do? <laughs> um, and one of the things that David Chase said among many that were very interesting was that The question of, is Tony Soprano rising or falling, is an interesting one. And the way that he saw it most of the time is that Tony was rising and falling all the time. And there was a confusion almost as to which Mm. one was happening. And in this episode, about narcissism, about self, about status and perception, Tony talks in an interesting way. It's not a gangster who fears that he's going to precipitously fall. It's not a gangster who sees that he's going to rise. He says the following, I don't want no disturbance. I want to avoid confusion, misinformation. These characters are looking for equilibrium. Mm. Um, And no matter how hard you try, shit's going to be out of your control. You can tell McKayzian to follow Melfi. You can give him specific instructions and say... Don't do this, don't do that. But McKazian's got his own issues in life, he's got a drinking problem, and shit's gonna go down. And Tony, if even inadvertently, is going to cause disturbance, confusion, misinformation. Mm. To answer your question, Jordan, uh, I think a lot of... Well said, Paul, by the way. Uh, To answer your question, Jordan, I think a lot about... Anytime I watch this episode, I try to think about the scene that isn't in the episode where Mr. Piacosta goes home after that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like he had to sit him down and say, do you understand that, like, I will die? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I will, he will kill me. He will kill you. He'll, you. You have to give this kid the money. I don't want to hear shit about it. You go hand him this money. What, what is it also about Tony that, uh, I think he authentically does want to have dinner with the Piacostas. Yeah. He barely knows this man. No, like, no, yeah. Honestly, less than acquaint- less than an acquaintance yeah. doesn't know his wife's name, as Paul pointed out. Okay, <laughs> uh, but he wants to he wants to befriend this guy. He wants to you know have a drink with him or whatever. Later in the episode, when Vin McKazian is just like just wants to talk talk to him about the Rutgers game, Tony just totally shirks him. Just just get away from me. Yeah. So Tony is also trying to he, he's he's trying to garden his normal life. Uh, and and trying to kind of weed out, you know, the the people in in his life that might be toxic to his garden. I, I what I'm trying to say is I think meeting at the gardening depot is is purposeful. Mm. And of course Tony's not holding a watering can; he's holding a fucking axe. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. I, little funny moment too. I love that he was trying to get some illegal DDT, you know, from yeah. the guy. <laughs> um, here's something uh, we've we've skirted around a little bit here, but let's dive into it. John Hurd, uh, wonderful, so wonderful beloved actor. actor who is unfortunately no longer. I'm, with I us. miss him so much. Yeah, I really do. No, he, he's really terrific. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, it's Detective Vin McKazian in this episode. He's probably most well known by the American populace as the dad in Home Alone. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, here he is as this gross, degenerate scum detective uh, who is in the Tony for a lot of money. And uh, we first see him taking a piss outside of Green Grove Retirement Home. <laughs> and uh, we see that Tony is essentially conscripting him to spy on Dr. Melfi. What do we make of this here? First of all, thoughts on Vin McKazian, thoughts on John Hurd's performance, and thoughts on where this storyline ends up going. So first, I was so excited when I was younger to see the dad from Home Alone doing something, because <laughs> I just always liked that actor, and I didn't know a lot of his stuff. And now returning to that as a man in my you know mid-30s, uh, I still love John Hurd, and I love John Hurd's performance, and I think his casting is so important because you don't usually cast John Hurd as a dirtbag. John <laughs> Hurd is a nice guy. That's the perception of him, is mm -hmm. as the dad in Home Alone. Yeah. And it lends something to the character of Vin McKazian. This is a guy whose life went wrong, I think because of Tony Soprano. Hmm. Oh, um, sure. So Tony's toxicity has leaked out and kind of ruined another life. And where Vin is super tragic for me is, man, this guy just really needs help. And, like, needs a friend, but Tony will just flip him over and exploit him time and time again. He's also just one of, you know, society's most vile things. He's a dirty cop that will abuse his power to serve himself. Mm. Um, and now that we know that Tony has, like, that instrument as well, you just really see how... Tony can, can be quite evil. I really hate his interactions with Vin, because I think in all of them... I know this is just the first of, I think, five that Vin appears in the series with Tony, uh, you know, he is always trying to be this man's friend, and Tony never really wants it. No, Tony's just as disgusted by him as we are, which is yeah. the ironic thing. And this, is, yeah, this is one of the more evil moments we've seen in the show, especially, you know, again, not to get political, but especially as the issue of police brutality is at the forefront of the national conversation. Watching this episode the other night was like, my God, he beats the shit out of this guy with total impunity. The other detective can't do anything about it. Melfi can't do anything about it. And then, like, the charges he's slapping on this guy. Uh, what was it? Resisting officer, DUI. DUI, resisting arrest, assaulting an officer. Assault. All within the span of a minute. Yeah, yeah, you can get, like, 15 years or more for that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Another gangster scenario. It's a lie yeah. um, that's made <laughs> to tell a story. Um, the McKayzian, um, I, I do want to hold off on saying too much in terms of plot, only because we'll we'll have more. But John Hurd is uh, such a compelling, um, rich actor. Uh, it does make me feel wistful uh, to see these scenes. They are rough, but also both of these actors aren't here anymore. Um, I think we talked about that a bit before we recorded. Yeah, the pre-recording, yeah. Um, and, I mean, these scenes are, they're dynamic, they're fun, they are, even, even in their, with Tony's cruelty and dismissiveness, I think they're funny at certain times. Also, it's a good... Given that our framework is narcissism, it's good to bring McKayzian in uh, thematically, I feel like, because when we're talking about status, no matter where Tony is, you can shit on McKayzian. Um, McKayzian starts off, he's taking a piss near this place, um, and Tony throws, I think, a rock at him. It says, <laughs> my mother lives here. Um, there's a lot of shitting and pissing talk in this episode, and it's a taboo. You don't say piss in front of your mother. You don't call Uncle Junior an old fart. In front of Tony, again, there are boundaries. Um, and when they're talking about whether or not McKayzian will be paid, you notice, another question of status comes up, and that is debt. Mm. Um, who yes. owes this? Do you owe that? Are you even going to get paid for this? Again, the dumb version of this is um, AJ and the Pia Costa kid arguing over the M-80s that they use to torture frogs in the greater northern New Jersey area <laughs> on the 4th of July. But again, debts brings up status and where you are in the pecking order 
Mm. Um, Paul, that's a beautiful parallel. Uh, yeah. Vin Mikazian and, and Jeremy Piacosta and Debt. I think that's yeah. that's so mm. profound. Um, and I think it was either you, Jordan, or you, Chris, when they talk about, when we talked about, I think the first episode, the CD player that Tony brings his mom is a bribe of a kind <laughs> for love. And So are the macaroons. Right. And I guess like a good Italian-American son, you never show up empty-handed. He brings, the mother never buys it. Even if she likes the cookies, she. Um, I don't well, let's, care. Let's talk about this scene because leave it uh, out for the lunatics. This is the, <laughs> <laughs> the sole Livia scene in this episode, and again, it's a standout. She, just, she steals every episode. The, the she was so ready to be excited about those macaroons, and then she remembered how miserable she's supposed to be. And I was like, oh, they're too sweet. Just couldn't 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 be happy about it for a second. Um. What a conversation. And then, yeah, again, going back to the, you're pissing it all down the drain. Beautiful language for your mother. Again, more pissing, more shitting. That's, <laughs> I didn't even notice all the piss shit references in this uh, episode. I guess they way. weave into the world of Sopranos pretty easily. Yeah, and again, we're not going to dip into spoiler territory, but uh, I, I want our audience members out there, and I, I think my co-hosts will know where I'm going with this, but when uh, I, I found the, the exchange between Livia and Tony... Where she's ta- where they're talking about going into the city to see a show, and she's like, "I hate that city." Yeah, and, and mothers throwing their babies out of skyscraper windows. Oh, and Tony's response is, "You know, you're always with the babies out the windows." <laughs> it's just a very interesting um, and significant exchange for reasons. She also at one point said, "Oh, and that Giuliani." <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's a very funny exchange, but um, the uh, themes of of you know, infanticide uh, might might become relevant. Also, the iconic "I wish the Lord would take me." First now. time, first time that line <laughs> it's is, the is first uttered. time we get that, and it's a it's a that's a classic Livia, as far as I'm concerned. We used to quote that in my house every yeah. time my mom would complain about something. <laughs> We're like, oh, you guys didn't put your laundry away. Like, I wish the Lord would take me now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, she steals the show again. Any other thoughts on the scene, Paul? Uh, it's another uh, might might relate to what Jordan said at the beginning, even though we're dealing with some pretty grim material, raw material thematically. Um, and, and this is, it's still a sad story in a lot of ways about, um, about a character, Livia, who really has a hard time being happy. Um, and, but it, there's funny bits. Mm. It's a funny scene. Um, yeah, and it does have a lot of pointers. We'll stay away from spoilers, but uh, yeah, the stuff with uh, the babies out the windows is another question <laughs> of um, <laughs> I think where our imaginations go. Maybe this is um, another aspect of narcissism. But we start with a dream. We move into AJ and his um, game world. Um, Christopher wants to talk about Scarface. These characters are all painting scenarios when they're in the hospital. They're, they're very sad over Jackie, but they immediately go into a deconstruction of what message a hit should send. Mm, sure. They're ready. They're like, they're going to go kill, possibly kill Mikey Palmisi, right? And Silvio says, the response should shoot, shoot the message. Shoot mm. the message. Mm. And Polly and Pussy are deconstructing the Mo Green hit in, in The Godfather. In, in one. Yeah. In one. <laughs> as, you're right. Uh, as, as Pussy says. Yeah, yeah the gangsters have that, that shorthand. They it by number. That's so cool. Um, but you notice there's another scene here. Um, when they find out that Jackie has died um, in the Bada Bing, which is another great scene where all oh, these worlds are scene. crashing together, the opening shot is Tony reading a book in a strip club called Elder Care. Yes. <laughs> Nodding off. Um, yeah, yeah. 
And Chris comes in. He's just been humiliated with the guy not giving him his cut um, and talking about his BM. Again, you're not supposed to talk about piss and shit. And totally blowing off the gravity of Jackie's death. Yeah. Um, so he's be- Chris has a- Chris has a tough time <laughs> in this episode. Um, and he comes in and he talks about the Scarface thing with the guns. And Silvio says one of the best lines in the episode. Uh, always, always with the scenarios. Always yeah, yeah. with the scenarios. <laughs> but by the end of that scene, he and the other gangsters are going into a scenario that does not come true. War of 98 doesn't happen. Adios Jr. doesn't happen. Mm. Everybody's, everybody's projecting. Mm. And none of them have control. I love it. I often wonder what the show would have been if Tony had done what everybody thought he was going to do. Just go in. Just t- kill Junior and, and be the boss. Oof. I don't know. It's a good that's question. A, that is a good question. Are we up to Junior? Well, Should we start talking about that? I want to talk about Junior quickly, but uh, just more directly to the point you're talking about. Um, he has the... Res- Tony, what's interesting is we see in this scene where these guys are eating these gigantic lobsters, like at least three pounds. There's a recurring fish seafood symbol in this episode and in the series. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of Jackie's kind of throwaway lines. Is I got a fish, fish in, in my, my pocket. pocket. Yeah. yeah. No, that's mm. that, that, that that's going to be a recurring motif throughout the show and in this episode, yes. Um, but he has... It, what's interesting is he has the support of the troops. He has support of the other captains. Uh, Again, I'm always very fascinated with the mob stuff. Um, And this is the first episode we kind of get a glimpse of the family structure as it stands. You have Jackie atop. And then you have these uh, the five capos, which are basically Junior, Tony. And then these characters at the table are Larry Boy Baris, or Barisi, Jimmy Altieri, and Ray Curto. And uh, this kind of... I always liked this meeting of captains scene where they kind of all... Give Tony the like, hey man, it's it's you. It's obviously you. Knock it off. And Tony's trying to play the the modest. Even Junior knows it's Tony. Oh yeah, yeah. That's why he feels so threatened. That's why he tells him, right. Next time you come, come heavy or not at all, because he knows that, you know, it's Tony's seat to lose. Is this another parallel? As Jordan pointed out, it seemed as though purely, in terms of a physical specimen and preparedness, the AJP Acosta kid, they're the the ending of what their fight would be is a foregone conclusion. Mm. Oh, yes. 100%, Paul. Yeah. Um, and, and when Junior says, come heavier and out at all, that's the same thing as Pia Costa, the Pia Costa kid saying, meet me at the pit at 3 o'clock. Nice. Yeah. Same thing. Ooh, very good. Let's, yeah, so let's get into it. Let's talk about Junior. Let's talk about these scenes at the uh, sit-tight loungeonette. And, uh, and... <laughs> well, for me, this this really plays into the idea of narcissism, you know, uh, more, almost more than anything else on in, in the episode. Yeah. The first thing I want to say is that I, I I was looking at the focus for the show of narcissism. Of course, it's pulled from Melfi's quote where she says, I thought we made some progress on your narcissism. <laughs> but we see the narcissism of so many characters in this episode. And the one that is, you know, almost as important as Tony's is, is Junior's narcissism. Yeah. The perception of himself. He's holding court at the sit-tight diner. Is that the correct name of it? I think it? it's the sit-tight loungeonette. Is, sit-tight is, loungeonette. Oh, geez. It, even, it's even, a diner. <laughs> even more old manny sounding. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> This, this is, when I think of Junior Soprano in his prime, it's this. It's him at this di- at this diner with these, like, crotchety old guys. Like, sure. You know, but yeah, continue. But it, it is absolutely Junior's narcissism that is getting in the way of things here. Even he knows that Tony is supposed to be the boss. And in one of many examples of Tony getting good advice from therapy and using it in a real bad way to further his own <laughs> ill-gotten gains, mm. uh, he allows Junior to think that he is the one in control, entirely playing into Junior's narcissism and not his own. I was paying a lot of attention to some reason how Tony is dressed in this episode 
beautifully, by yes. the way. Mm. And some uh, spectacle is made of the suit that Mikey Palmisi yeah, is wearing as well. Yeah, I was just well. going to bring that up. So however you look is very important. Uh, of course, we are talking about emotionally and in terms of politics, but also how you physically look is very important. Well, as you said in episode two, what is a gangster without his suit? That's exact. I, I agree with myself. <laughs> um, and, and costuming is so key in this episode. I've already mentioned AJ's Marilyn Manson t-shirt. Uh, I would also bring up Tony's beautiful suit that he's wearing when he goes to see his mother that you realize is probably more because he's going to be seeing Jackie and the boys at the hospital later and then go to dinner that night. Um, the Godfather pinstripe suit that Junior is wearing at the end of the episode oh, after God, he's been yeah. made boss of the family. But Tony's equally beautiful suit that seems to represent, hey, but I'm still powerful. Mm. I'm the power behind the evident puppet throne. Mm. Um Really, really good stuff. And the last costume piece, and I, I know I shouldn't focus only on costumes, is, is poor AJ, middle school kid, bowl cut, wearing the yellow watch uh, <laughs> in the in the graveyard scene, right? Yeah. Uh, I think all these things are, are notable. Oh, but, and they're deliberate, too. And uh, obviously deliberate. More to the point, Tony has to be able to negotiate how much of his own narcissism he is willing to um, acknowledge and then how much he's willing to shift over to Junior because Junior's narcissism is ultimately his downfall and something that Tony uses to step on. Unfortunately, because he's Tony, he doesn't grow from this moment. He only learns how to kind of be more narcissistic because now is he not only seen as powerful, he's seen as very clever. He's put up Junior as, they say, the lightning rod to take all the hits. Mm. The government photographers are shooting Junior and not Tony. Um, Tony knows exactly what he's doing, and again, he's learned the wrong lesson from Dr. Melfi. Well, otherwise, you'd fuck me, Larry, but you wouldn't respect me in the morning. <laughs> oh, and he gets he gets the paving union out of this, which oh, we yeah. are led to believe is, is a huge boon to his operation. Sure, uh, as it would be. Unions are a big part of it for them, mm -hmm. for these guys. Yeah, Paul, any thoughts on this Tony Jr. fallout and where this all goes? Uh, well, I had not made the connection with... Uh, I guess clothing making the man, but it fits and of course has the wonderful relationship to Mikey Palmisi. Um, and again, now if you, if we can't shit and piss in certain places, we can't pollute certain things. Tony can't go in and punch junior in the face guns blazing. Technically you shouldn't touch Mikey either, but somebody's going to get the brunt of this. Somebody's going to get the force of this. Somebody's going to get polluted. Um, and so this, the stapler, the, uh, I think to one of Tony's, fun lines though pretty dark as he's stapling Palmisi's chest he says what are you screaming about a few alterations it's a very funny line <laughs> That's great. um and the scenes with tony and junior are always great yeah um in this one uh again very smart use of language and the way that they communicate and have trouble communicating um I don't have much to add, given where Junior took it, but it's fascinating, again, to see another scenario set up, wherein Junior gets the big chair, but it's a show. As yeah. Tony reiterates at the end when he's talking to his friends, um, truth is, all decisions are made by me. And what he, sa he says to Tony, uh, excuse me, Ju Tony says to Junior, whispering in his ear, you know I can't be perceived to lose face. So when he gets the paving union, he's able to do it in such a way where Junior almost feels that he's throwing Tony a piece of yeah. bread or something. I mean, it's a, it's it's expertly done. Um, and what these all come together as that's so interesting is that in the first three minutes of this episode, 
what we see is that Tony is, he has a stress dream. Um, people at work showing up in a therapy session. Not good. Mm. We know this. Um, and it's, it's, again, a question of narcissism and status among his guys. The last image in the episode, one of the last images, is we see Tony's status solidified among his guys. But we're seeing it from the perspective of AJ, who's come to this realization. Mm. So... Mm. We're climbing towards the end of this episode, so I want to do a quick, a couple quick touchdown questions or, or, or last little thoughts on some of the more understated moments of the episode. Here's a question I have had since I first saw this episode, because I don't want to criticize it necessarily because I don't um, quite understand it. So I'm hoping maybe by bringing it up here, somebody can add something to this. There's an interesting scene early on in the episode when Tony, uh, after Tony has had his dream, where he's walking into Melfi's office and sees Silvio coming out of a dentist office in the same. It's like we're led to believe it's some like a medical building, and the scene is shot in a very strange way. It almost feels ethereal, like a dream unto itself. But it happens. It really happened. It, it, it's it's Tony's anxieties manifest, uh, where he's caught very narrowly, almost ne- very narrowly caught going into Melfi's office by one of his closest allies. Um, why did they shoot the scene this way? It has a dreamlike quality to it, but it's real. I, I don't know that they have done that before or do it again since. Good question. Uh, I think that given that it's close to the framing of the dream at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, is deliberate, it also shows Tony um, in this scattered mode. What we're going to cover in the next episode is storylines honed in with a lot of two-hander scenes. This episode structurally almost exactly the opposite. Tony is all over the place. He has a few check-ins with people. Um, he's mostly focused on the business. A lot of the scenes that are checking in with so-and-so do not go well. Scene with the mom doesn't go well. Scene with Carmela does not go well. Mm. Um, and so I think that sequence feeling like a dream shows the way in which he's pulled in these various directions and will then... Good moments in writing, I had a teacher once who said, good writing guides you. And that moment in its writing and in the structure of the way it's shot guides you to the next sequence, I'd say, where Tony says to Melfi in their next therapy session minutes later, I come here, I tell you things, I don't know if it's safe. How is Tony going to ensure safety? He's going to look her up and find stuff out about her. That will keep him safe for now. It's going to fuck up her life, at least in the moment. He starts off in a stress dream. By the end, in her own words, Tony has enacted a living nightmare mm, for her. Yeah. Um, for me, that scene and how it's shot is um, kind of to confuse the blend between dream and reality. Yeah. Again, the episode is titled Meadowlands, and I made the earlier allusion to the Elysian Fields Any, or Elysium. Anybody I've ever watched that episode with thinks immediately, oh, this is another extension of the dream. And it isn't. Yeah, I think the viewer is meant is meant to be caught off guard in the same way that Tony is and say, oh, is this moment a dream? Is this reality? And there is a sub-theme in this episode, and again, also in the series of um, uh, sleep and dreams, mm. but also wakefulness and awareness versus ignorance. And um, as Tony wakes up from this dream and realizes, he, I think he wakes up next to Irina, in fact, um, he just realizes how all his worlds, uh, no matter how hard he tries to compartmentalize and separate these things, they're always going to bleed together. And in the B-plot, Meadow is waking up AJ to the truth about his father, and he can no longer live in the dream that is in that mm. photograph of him and his father just fishing. Um, so I think the, the line that is drawn between being asleep and dreaming 
and also being awake and being aware. This is the Meadowlands. It is this dreamscape. Even Jackie April on his deathbed, he's floating in and out of consciousness, and these true, deeply symbolic things are coming, you know, out of him. Yeah. I've got the fish in my pocket. I'm at the World Trade Center. These things are significant. These lines weren't chosen at random. Right. Mm, very good. A couple other quick things. Uh, just a, a, a thought I had that I had to note down. It wasn't enough for Christopher to beat the shit out of Yo-Yo Mendez. <laughs> the last thing we see in that scene is, is he breaks the Yo-Yo and drops it next to him. It's like he couldn't even... He had to break the Yo-Yo. I just thought that was very hilarious. It wasn't enough to beat the shit out of him. He breaks the Yo-Yo. Also, we were, we were agreed Yo-Yo Mendez didn't do anything wrong. Oh, no, I... You listen. What else could I, you have done? You're in that position, and somebody's like, "Hey, Chris ain't, ain't down in the picture no more. We're the power. You, you're going to give your cut to us. What the fuck are you going to do? Right. They're going to beat you, or Chris is going to beat you. Absolutely. And also, you can't contact Chris. He's incapacitated, as far as you know. Okay, this is the collection. Uh, doesn't yeah, exactly. doesn't I think Yo Yo Mendez himself says the line, "I don't." are you too good with a gun in my mouth? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, but again, somebody's going to get shit or pissed on, and it's not going to be... And Chris has already, in his own view, taken too much yeah. in this episode. Right, the narcissism. So. Chris has to be the man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And uh, he has to not only be the man, but break the thing that Yo-Yo Mendez is named for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, just the... Um, Maybe you were going to get to this in a moment. Just this this kind of um, idea that the kids are not all right in this episode. Mm-hmm. And for maybe the last time... I really focus on just how young AJ and Meadow oh, yeah. are. They're oh, young yeah. kids. AJ's in middle school, maybe seventh or eighth grade. Meadow is, as we know, just ending high school. Um, but they're they're still young, and their youth has been corrupted by this world that they're in too. And this rite of passage that Meadow must now pass on to her brother of, you know, the truth about mom and dad, right? You know, the truth about this family. Mm. Um, there, there's really something to that. Mm. And yeah. let's uh, and we and as Jordan just eloquently framed it a rite of passage is something that i'm sure we'll talk about in depth in the next episode oh for sure last thing here and then i want to get into kind of final thoughts um the scene with carmilla in this episode is very interesting it's the only big carmilla scene i think there's little moments but i think this is the only scene of significance we have with uh, featuring carmilla where she um, really takes tony to task over his Tony's scared. He's nervous about how it will make him look and what it, with the threat it could put him under um, to continue in therapy, his anxieties of being discovered and whatnot. What uh, is, and then Carmela kind of takes a hard line with him and says, you know, if you if you back out, I, you know, I'm gonna have to reevaluate things. Any thoughts on this very power? I mean, first of all, my my initial impression anytime I see these two really going at it is there's nothing James Gandolfini and Edie Falco can't do. They're just so good together. So good. Um, they're so believable as a married couple. Like I've, I don't know, I've, I've seen this kind of fight from people I know that are married. It's just crazy. Uh, but yeah, just any comments or, or thoughts on how that scene plugs into everything? I couldn't do any better than what the way Jordan a minute ago framed a lot of, I think, this episode is Tony trying to compartmentalize mm. these different parts of his life. And that's something I think that gangster or guy on the street, everybody tries to do so everybody can understand something about this but tony's trying to keep a lot of things separate and doesn't want his wife to know too much about his therapist uh yeah he told me still he's lying about his therapist being a woman um and he of course the assumption is that none of the gangsters would approve but as he's pulling away from it carmel is saying no this is our marriage and and you and 
and I and she was so, she was overjoyed in the pilot when she found out he was getting help for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's another complication of these different worlds colliding. Um, and again, I, I can't I couldn't again say it any better than when Gandolfini and Edie Falco get in there together, and the writing is as rich as it is. It's great. Anything to add? I think Carmela's threat to Tony in this scene is actually pretty toothless. It's a well-acted yeah. scene, it's a beautifully written scene, but when she says she's going to have to reevaluate things, I don't think we as the viewer ever actually believe that she's going to leave Tony, certainly not over this. But it is clear that it's important to her that he is seeking help. I do wonder what kind of man that she thinks Tony can become, and I'm immensely sad for Carmela that she thinks he's capable of that kind of change. Well, let's, I think we'll have ample room to get into that in the next episode. But, uh, yeah, so here we are. We are at uh, the end of Meadowlands. All, for all intents and purposes, Junior's the, uh, Junior's the boss in name, but he's essentially there as a puppet for Tony to run the family. Everybody but Junior knows. Uh, AJ knows who his father is. And Melfi's relationship with Randall, the accountant, is forever changed. <laughs> and uh, Melfi has her first real hint that she might be in for more than she bargained for with all of this. Any final thoughts? Uh, VIP scenes, your favorite scene, your favorite character, your favorite moment? Um, there's a lot of great scenes. I do want to give a shout out. This The world of The Sopranos is roughly three and a half hours old. The last beat of the last storyline is done with no dialogue. That's mm-hmm. how well we know this world. That's how well we know this character these characters, that's how confident we can be in the people who make these episodes and put them together. That's how confident we can be in their storytelling. Mm. Um, So that's a powerful thing for me. I also just want to do a shout-out. There's a lot of good scenes in this. Uh, It's a difficult scene to watch where um, Randall gets beat up um, and the, the subsequent scene where he's quoting the doors and he's too afraid to go outside. Yeah. Um, and I do just want to give a shout-out. I've seen that actor, Mark Bloom, in a number of things this a lot of other tv some theater um we lost him this year he passed Mm. away due to complications from COVID 19 um sucks which can go fuck itself um and uh, so i just want to shout out rest in peace mark bloom jordan favorite characters moments scenes final thoughts melfi two things melfi reflects on the climate of rage in american society Mm. um and uh on on the casual violence of it all and she's more putting Tony in the role of the therapist when she says that to him. And I think this is the first really profound moment we get in the series where these two are kind of in therapy with each other mm. and that the relationship between therapist and patient is not exactly what it seems. Um, so that moment I thought was great. I thought this was a great Melfi episode sort of in general. Just Lorraine Bracco is just tremendous. Yes. Um, the other thing I want to point out or to mention, because I, I loved it and it actually, it, it really profoundly affected me on my rewatch. I rewatched this episode last night preparing for today's episode. Um, in Tony's dream sequence, it's kind of a funny moment. Um, it is a funny moment. Silvio uh, is having sex with one of the Bada Bing girls, we think, in the waiting room of Melfi's office in the dream. And he's over her shoulder while he is uh, doing the deed with her. And he gives her what I refer to as the wise guy wink. Yeah. At the end of the episode, uh, when we're in the graveyard and, and AJ's just kind of hanging out over to the side and kind of, you know, surveying it all. He sees his dad. He sees everybody crowded around his dad. He sees his Uncle Junior in the pinstripe godfather suit. He looks over his sister. Meadow gives him the look, which can only be interpreted as, see, I told you so. He looks over at the government guys taking the shots of everybody in the crowd. He has this glimpse the unthinkable moment when he realizes that his whole life has been a lie, and he is a gangster's kid, and this is the truth about his world. And Tony gives him the wise guy wink. Mm. 
he gives him the same wink from from the dream. It's and, making my stomach turn thinking about AJ in that moment. Go ahead. Sorry. And um, you know, I, not to I, I'm not putting down Tony Soprano or making people feel bad for liking him. This is our struggle with Tony. As viewers, this is what makes the show compelling, is how you can hate this man so much and love him so much at the same time, just as we hate and love ourselves and the people in our own lives. It's such a sickening moment, because mm. the wise guy wink implies everything. It implies, could be just, hey kid, you're my son and I'm just sharing like a quick moment with you. It could be like, hey kid, look at me, look how fucking cool I am in my suit with all my friends around me. Do you have any idea what you're part of, what, what, what a piece of this looks like, what this legacy is all about? Oof. Uh, and the wise guy wink also just kind of incorporates the ideologies of, hey, forget about it. It is what it is, kid. And AJ's looking on this scene with his, his father, and, and to get that wink, it, it's sort of stomach-churning. It's almost like finding out that your dad is a monster, basically, is, mm -hmm. is what it is, and you are the son of a monster, and that is your lot in life. It's going to have profound long-term effects on AJ for sure. Uh... For me, this was a big junior episode, and I'm a big junior fan. And uh, those scenes in the loungeonette are what I would point to somebody and say, that's Junior Soprano. You know, the, the silly jokes, the Chinese godfather made him an offer they couldn't understand. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and another junior thing, uh, the, some other characters I think in the show do it from time to time, but uh, I've not been shy about comparing Sopranos to Shakespeare. Junior drops a big uh, Junior drops a Shakespearean line. I'm waiting like patience on a monument for discipline to be handed down. Yeah, and I was thinking, night. yeah, and I was thinking it's so amazing when these like rough blue collar characters who mispronounce things possibly on purpose. Something we've discussed. I think it. I, I still hold that theory. I bring it up every single um, time we meet. Yes. You know, Junior especially is prone to quoting Shakespeare, and I just think that's very fascinating. So um, I just those scenes were so gangster. This Tony fucking up Mikey Palmisi going in there having the first meeting and it's like you come back here you come heavy or not at all just as a fan of the gangster genre mm -hmm. there's a lot of badassery there there's a lot of posturing a lot of narcissism uh, it's great it's it's good shit alright well uh, if that's all guys I'm looking forward to the next episode it's this is the next one's kind of a, a monolith for the uh, Sopranos uh, oh, yeah. universe everything uh, for if you're watching through in the first time everything you think is going to happen after this episode, it, just throw it right the fuck out the window. The next one's going in a completely different direction than you can imagine. And, uh, yeah, this has been great. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And this is the Sopranos Podcast. Bada bing.